Jacob thought he was getting one wife, he got two. The Rachel he wanted and the Leah he didn't want. What's worse is Jacob had to spend lots of time with lackluster Leah before he even got to be with radiant Rachel. When Jacob said, I do, he got to. The radiant Rachel he wanted, the lackluster Leah he didn't want. Now, if you've been following along in our yearly Bible reading plan, uh, you would have come across this weird story on January 14th. It's chapter 29 of Genesis. And it's a real head-scratcher. Let me just, let me just read the text to you. Uh, kids, hold your ears. Chapter 29 of Genesis. You have to ask, open your Bible if you have one. If not, there's a pew Bible in front of you. And uh, we're going to have to crack the Bible today. So there's no, there's no PowerPoint for you. We're just going to open the old book. Can we do that? Yeah. All right. Chapter 29, beginning with verse 14b. After Jacob had stayed with him, his uncle Laban, for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. (laughs) Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, It is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also, in return for another seven years of work. Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. <laughs> like I said, this is a head scratcher. If you are married, you know what it's like to be Jacob. <laughs> When you said, I do, you got two. You got the radiant Rachel you wanted. A Rachel who will love you and no one else will. A Rachel who will remind you who you are and whose you are in case you ever forget. A Rachel who will brag about you to the mother-in-law. A Rachel who will make you hot soup when you have a cold, who will put 
uh, a little gift under your pillow for no reason at all and will plan special getaways for your birthday and anniversary. When you said I do, you got a Rachel who will offer, offer physical warmth and affection. A Rachel who will greet you in the morning with a big kiss. After brushing teeth, of course. When you said I do, you got the Rachel you wanted. Now, if you're sitting next to your spouse, this is a good time to say amen. Yeah, okay. But, but, when you said I do, you not only got the radiant Rachel you wanted, you got the lackluster Leah you didn't want. A Leah who will not always agree with your inspired ideas. A Leah who will give you the silent treatment or, or scream in your face. Aaliyah who will complain about you to the mother-in-law. Aaliyah who likes music you don't like and doesn't like music you do like. Aaliyah who spends way too much money on things that don't matter to you. Aaliyah whose decision-making process is, well, less logical than your own. (laughs) When you said I do, you not only got the radiant Rachel you wanted, you got the lackluster Leah you didn't want. Do not say amen right now. (laughs) Every couple comes to the conclusion that when they said I do, they got two. And many couples, because of it, end up quitting the marriage or coexisting in the marriage. But then there are those rare couples who learn to love not only the Rachel, but the Leah in their spouse. And their marriage becomes a thing of beauty, golden. Now, whether or not you're married, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you too know what it's like to be Jacob. When you said, I do to God, you got the radiant Rachel you wanted. You got the Christ. A Rachel who forgives your sins and heals your wounds. A Rachel who loves you with an everlasting, unconditional love. A a, a Rachel who takes you out of the mire and the muck and places your feet on solid ground. A Rachel who breaks the bars of your sin and shame and causes you to walk with your head held high in the dignity of discipleship. A Rachel who gives you purpose in the morning and peace in the dark night of the soul. A Rachel who promises, come to me and I will give you rest. Come to me and I will not reject you. And he keeps those promises. A Rachel who wipes every tear from our eyes. When you said, I do to God, you got the Rachel you wanted. You got Christ. But, but when you said, I do to God, you not only got the radiant Rachel the Christ you wanted. You also got the lackluster Leah you didn't want. You got the church. A church that will disappoint you almost constantly. A church full of leaders who run off with the secretary. Uh, a, A church that seems at times more full of gossip than goodness, more sinful than sanctified. A church full of idiosyncratic people, weird people you would never choose to hang out with if you had the choice. I mean, look around. Stop looking at me. Look around. You got a Leah who seems to major in the minors and minor in the majors. A Leah that seems at times too traditional, too contemporary. 
too restrictive, too progressive, too, too Democrat, too, too Republican. When you said, I do, to God, you not only got the Rachel you wanted, the Christ, you got the lackluster Leah you didn't want. You got the church. A church that often makes you perhaps wonder if getting Rachel is worth enduring Leah. So now I just tell, I just tell couples and converts this little ditty. <laughs> when you say, I do, you get two. The Rachel you want, the Leah you don't want. Let's be honest. It, it feels a little bit like God has pulled a Laban on us Jacobs, doesn't it? Many of us in this room have probably been hurt, disappointed, confounded, frustrated by lackluster Leah, the church. I won't even ask you to put your hands up because I know you all put your hands up. <laughs> I have. But if you want to feel better about your experience of Leah, read about the Apostle Paul's experience of Leah. 1 Corinthians. If ever there was a church that made somebody wonder if getting Rachel was worth enduring Leah, it was the Corinthian church. Just read 1 Corinthians sometime. (laughs) Here's what Paul endured with with that Leah. Chapter 1, Paul gets on them because the Corinthians are having a My Favorite Preacher competition. Some followed Apollo, some followed Peter, some followed Paul. In chapter 2, we discover that in the Corinthian congregation, there was a form of wisdom worship going on, which was a a pagan thing. In chapter 3, Paul gets on them because there's jealousy and quarreling going on in the church. In chapter 5, he gets on them because he says there's sexual immorality going on among you that's worse than that of the pagans. Some of you are sleeping with your father's wife, your stepmom. In chapter 6, he gets on them because they're taking their fight with each other to the secular courts of law, diminishing their witness. And then in chapter 6 still, he comes at them because they're doing things with prostitutes they ought not to be doing. In chapter 11, Paul rebukes them because uh, the sacrament of communion has become an occasion for social class division between the rich and the poor. In chapter 12, there's some spiritual Olympics going on in the church uh, where they're competing with each other for the showier spiritual gifts and neglecting the spiritual fruit of love. In chapter 15, uh, evidently there are some leaders in the church who are saying that there is no literal physical resurrection from the dead. And by the time you get to chapter 16, the last chapter, Paul's had it. (laughs) He's at his wit's end. He says, if any of you do not love the Lord Jesus, a curse be upon him. Then he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. (laughs) Poor Paul. So if you want to feel better about your experience of Leah, the church, read 1 Corinthians. You'll feel better. I mean, sure, your congregation might argue about worship style and stuff, but nobody's sleeping with his stepmom. But I wonder if we have more in common with that corrupt congregation, the Corinthians, than we care to admit. I've heard it said, if you want to enjoy a sausage... <laughs> 
Don't watch it being made. It's gross. It's messy. If you want to enjoy the church, don't watch disciples being made. Because it's gross. It's, it's messy. It's awkward. It's hard. You get the smell all over your hair and your fingers. In fact, the people who struggle most with Leah, the church, are people who have gotten up close and personal to the sausage being made, to disciples being made. Pastors and lay leaders, people who care. And they got close and they got burnt. I mean, if you want to be happy in the church, tolerate Leah like Jacob did. (laughs) Because if you love her, she will drive you absolutely bonkers. And when she does, you will be tempted to either quit her or coexist with her. I confess I have on many occasions as a lay person and as a pastor thought about quitting Leah. And there have been many times when I have not quit, but I ended up coexisting with Leah. I'd show up, but my heart wasn't in it. I have a friend like that, attended one of the churches I pastored. He was somebody who at one point in his life poured blood, sweat, and tears into Leah, loved Leah, gave to Leah, poured his heart into Leah. And then he got hurt by Leah, burned by Leah, disappointed by Leah, frustrated with Leah. And by the time I met him, he was what I would call in a, in a relationship of casual coexistence with the church. He's the guy who would come after the service already started. And then he would leave during the last song. And he wouldn't connect with anybody. He was hypercritical of everything in the church. Everything. And then when I'd say things to him like, well, why don't you get involved and use your substantial gifts to make a difference? He said, no, 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 no. Did that before. His criticism of Leah, his toleration of Leah, his coexistence with Leah was making him less Rachel and more Leah. I wonder how many of us in this room have slipped into a relationship with Leah of casual coexistence. Oh, we pay the bills with Leah. We share the chores with Leah. Maybe there's a passing peck on the cheek, but no real intimacy. We've been disappointed. We've been burned. We've been frustrated. No more. And deep in the bowels of our soul, where no one else but God can see, we have said, I'm done. And if that's where you are, I can't blame you. I mean, who in their right mind would say yes to Leah? Who in their right mind would say yes to the failures, the foibles, the flaws that make up this Leah called the church? Jacob didn't. But Jesus did. All of us come to Jesus the groom as Leah. None of us come as Rachel. We come down the aisle to Jesus the groom 
and the piano player is playing, not here comes the bride all dressed in white, but here comes the sinner all dressed in shame. And we're coming down with our ripped dress, running mascara, bad hair day, the baggage of our sin and shame and struggle. And Jesus is smiling ear to ear like he's getting a radiant Rachel. But he's getting lackluster Leah when he gets us. And unlike Jacob, Jesus knew exactly what he was getting himself into when he got into a relationship with us. This is an arranged marriage by Jesus' father who paid the dowry with the blood of his son, Christ. Romans 5.8 says it best. For even while we were yet sinners, yet Leah, Christ died for us. He wed himself to us. He knew exactly what he was getting. And what we have discovered is that when lackluster Leahs like us are loved and loved well by radiant Rachel Christ, it has a beautifying effect upon us, doesn't it? It makes us a little less Leah and a little more Rachel. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, washing her with the water of the word to present to himself a radiant church, a radiant Rachel without spot or wrinkle or blemish. Jesus shows us that the best way to handle lackluster Leah is not to tolerate her, not to critique her, not to distance yourself from her, but to love her. Because when a lackluster Leah is loved and loved well, despite all the reasons not to love her, she becomes more beautiful, more radiant. And here's the punchline. When lackluster Leahs like us love the lackluster Leah that is the church, not only do we make the church more beautiful, but in the process of learning to love the church despite all the reasons not to love her, guess what? We become more beautiful too. I'm saying that marriage is a sanctifying grace. It's the hammer God uses to chisel us Leahs into Rachel. That's what I'm saying. Most people conclude that the hardest thing about being a Christian is the church. Just give me Jesus. But the church, uh, we think of the church not as a grace, but as a curse. Because in church, you don't get to pick who comes. And you run into all kinds of odd people. Prideful, arrogant, lustful. Immature people just like you and just like me. And that's what makes the church such a sanctifying grace is we have to learn how to love people we don't like and that has a sanctifying effect upon us if we let it. I'm saying that God's number one tool for the sanctification of the soul is lackluster Leah, the church. I'm saying that what is most frustrating about the church can be the most formative in our lives. That's what I'm saying. And that's a grace, not a curse. And there's a benefit that comes with this. 
not just the spiritual growth, but when lackluster Leahs learn to love the lackluster Leah, that is the church, we get to experience more of radiant Rachel. You cannot be intimate with Christ and be hypercritical of his bride or tolerant of his bride or distant from his bride, the church. Many people say that. Just give me Jesus, but the church, and they're lacking intimacy with Christ. If you want to be my friend, if you want to be an intimate friend with me, and you're critical of my wife, putting her down, like if you call me and say, Len, come on over this weekend with the kids, but leave Amy home because I really just don't like her. There's no way you and I are going to be an intimate friendship. Impossible. If you are starving for intimacy with Jesus Christ, try loving what Christ loves. Try loving the church. Not tolerating, loving. If you want to be happy in the church, tolerate Leah. But if you want to be holy, love Leah. And remember that Christ did not die to make you happy, but to make you holy so that holiness becomes your greatest happiness. Well, the Apostle Paul wrote a another letter to those cantankerous Corinthians. It's called, you guessed it, 2 Corinthians. And uh, in the first few chapters, uh, Paul is talking about the potential of the grace of Christ in a church. But Paul knows who he's writing this letter to. He knows the proclivities, the idiosyncrasies, the, the failures of this church. And it's like in the chapter 4, Paul just sort of, I, I imagine him pausing and getting real sober, like reflective. He's thinking of the potential of the church, but the, but the, but the problems in the church, and he's trying to reconcile it. And in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, he writes words that make sense of the good, the bad, the ugly of the church that I think probably saved Paul from quitting the church. I know those words have saved me from quitting the church, and I hope will benefit you and keep you, perhaps, from quitting the church when you're tempted to. Here's what he wrote. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power comes from God and not from us. There it is. Paul has in mind the jars of clay, the earthen vessels in the day that were cheap, inexpensive, uh, fragile, easily broken. And what he's saying is that God put his most valuable treasure, Christ, not in a safe, but in jars of clay, lackluster Leah, us, If you think the church is a risk for you, realize what a risk it is for God. That God decided to place his most valuable treasure in the likes of us, in the non-FDIC insured bank called the church. What a risk. I asked earlier if 
getting Rachel is worth enduring Leah. I mean, if you knew back then when you said I do to God that you were not only getting the radiant Rachel, the Christ you wanted, but the lackluster Leah, the church you didn't want, would you still say I do? Would you renew your vows? In 2008, June 13th, 2008, my wife Amy and I did a 10-year renewal of vows ceremony at the church I pastored in Pennsylvania. And like a lot of things my wife uh, initiates, I, I kind of drag my feet. I go into it kicking and screaming. We already got married. We already did that. It was great, June 13th, 1998. Why do we have to do it again? How could it top that wedding day? But like a good husband, I did it. <laughs> and I'm so glad I did. Because I'll be honest, that, that 10-year renewal of vows ceremony meant more to me than our wedding day. Here's why. On our wedding day, June 13th, 1998, when we said, I do, we thought we were getting one. <laughs> we thought we were getting the radiant Rachel we wanted. But after 10 years of marriage, you discover that when you said, I do, you got two. You discover some Leah in your spouse. Amy discovered more in me than I did in her. And then to stand after 10 years of marriage, knowing that when we said, I do, we got to, and to look each other in the eyes and say, I take you all over again. Rachel and Leah, I do. That meant so much. So back to my question. Would you say, I do to God all over again? Knowing that when you say, I do, you get to. Rachel and Leah. Beauty and beast. Treasure and clay pot. Christ and the church. Would you? Would you? I got one thumbs up. I'm going to ask you to stand and renew your vows to faithfully love God by loving Christ and the church. Stand with me. We're going to renew our vows. And by the way, I usually charge $50 for any renewal of vow ceremony that I do, so it's a lot of money. Just saying. Here we go, church. Do you vow to love the church despite her failures, foibles, and flaws so that your love for her makes you and her more beautiful, more radiant? If so, say, I do. Do you vow to resist the urge to carelessly coexist with or callously quit the church when she drives you crazy because she absolutely will? If so, say, I do. Do you vow for the sake of the church to give when you want to withhold, to show up when you want to stay home, to serve when you'd rather play it safe, to reconcile when you'd rather avoid, to commend at least as much as you critique? If so, say, I do. Do you vow to live as if the ultimate hope of the world is not a politician or political party, but Christ through the church? If so, say, I do. Do you vow to recognize that you need the church at least as much as she needs you? if you're ever going to experience the deep union with Christ that you crave and become the radiant Rachel he created you to be? If so, say, I do. I do. Amen.